Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. We're going to be looking at the arrest of Jesus and His trials, or mock trials, if you would. And Jesus is, with every verse, taking one step closer to the cross. With every verse, he is taking one step closer to what he came to do, and that is to redeem sinners who would believe and trust in him. In these next few lessons, we are going to see as we look at, as we learn from these events that are surrounding Jesus' arrest, and we will learn from them. Many times we look at the peak events here, and we limit ourselves to those peak events, and miss out on all the little intricate details and all the smaller lessons that we can, we can gain in these truths that we oftentimes don't squeeze from this orange. We're going to squeeze the truths from the orange. What I mean by that is we're not going to squeeze anything out that's not there. We're going to do our due diligence to rightly divide it and not pass up anything that the Lord would have us to see in His Word. We know that the peak truths are going to happen. The Lord is going to be arrested and He going to be taken before Annas. And we know that Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is the current high priest, Annas being the former high priest. In the Jewish system, that was never to be so. They were to be high priests for life. However, the Romans got involved, and they made them annually select a new high priest. And the reason for that was so that there would not be a Jewish revolt against the Romans, because if you study anything about the history of the day, the Jews were terrified of a revolt or revolution uh, from the Jews. And so the Romans wanted to keep uh, the Jewish people at bay, and that's what they were doing in changing the way that the priesthood was selected. And so we see that they're going to meet with Annas, um, who is the former high priest as far as the Romans are concerned, but to the Jew, he still wields much authority and power because he is a man of wisdom in their eyes. So they're going to go to Annas, and then he is going to then have this crowd along with Christ to be taken before Caiaphas, who, who is the current high priest, again, the son-in-law of Annas. Then we're, we're going to see Jesus <clears throat> appear before the Sanhedrin. There's all kind of debate of how this really played out with examining each gospel and how, how did it really lay out. The, the details are really insignificant. I want you to see this. He went to Annas. He went to Caiaphas. He, he stood before the Sanhedrin. No matter what order you put that in, you're going to see that there are three trials before the Jews. And it's very important because not only were there three trials before the Jews as he went before Annas and Caiaphas and then the Sanhedrin, there are also the Roman trials that Jesus is going to undergo as well. And he's going to be sent to Pilate, who is the Roman governor during this time. And then from Pilate, he's going to be sent to Herod, who is that Roman client king. He was basically a defunct Jew who served the Romans for money, if you want to know the truth behind that. And then he's going to send them back to Pilate, again, for that third trial before Roman authority. So there are three religious trials of Jesus, coupled with three Roman trials or examinations of Jesus. And those are very important facts, and you're going to read this, and you're going to see those facts um, 
And in all of those, both in his Jewish religious trials, those three, and his Roman trials, neither group, on three occasions per group, neither group could find any true fault in Jesus Christ. In fact, Pilate himself said that, I find no fault in this man. But yet Jesus is being dragged around after his arrest, and we're going to see that in detail today according to John's take on it in his eyewitness account. He's being dra dragged around from trial to trial. He's been arrested, and no one, after examining him, can find any truth to the accusations that are being made against Jesus. Very important detail in this. And those are the obvious details in the account of Jesus' arrest and his trials. And many times people teach that, and it's those peak details that they are concerned with. But I want us to see that when we look below the surface of those things, that God has included some things in his word that we have to consider, some elements in these passages that we must examine. I want us to examine those today because oftentimes they go unnoticed. But there is a great lesson here for all of us. Let's read it together as we unfold and as we examine these four important elements today of the arrest of Jesus. John chapter 18, we're at verse 12, and we'll be going all the way to verse 27. I'm going to read the entire text, and then we'll come back and dissect it. It says in verse 12, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. Remember in our last lesson in John, here came the mob, right, with torches and swords and weapons and all these things coming out to get Jesus as if he was some common criminal. We know that those officials came from the Romans. They came from the Jewish authorities, the religious leaders of the day. And they were being led by Judas Iscariot, the one who had betrayed Christ, who had pretended to be a follower of Christ, only pretending and ultimately revealing that he was not a true believer. And here, this is where the arrest takes place. It says, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commanders and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him. Isn't that interesting? They, they took some type of restraint. We would know that restraint as handcuffs in our day, but they took some type of restraint. And they bound Christ as if he was some type of common criminal. What's interesting about this, if we'll really pay attention to what all we've seen in John, what all we see in the complementary uh, accounts of the other Gospels, we see this. We see that Jesus really was not taken. He gave himself up. Now, had Jesus not stuck his hands out and allowed them to do this, they could have never bound him. It's Jesus himself who testified to the fact that he could call legions of angels at any time to stop what was going on, but it was not the Father's will. So Jesus now here willfully submits by allowing them to bind him. Verse 13, it says, And brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. We can go back to John's 11th chapter, and we remember that Caiaphas made this claim, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Verse 15 says, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus, because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. So that disciple, most scholars would agree that that's John talking about himself, because when John referred to himself, he never referred to himself by name. We really don't understand why, but we can probably come to this conclusion that John didn't refer to himself by name because John felt in his true humility that his name really wasn't that important. And so John says that it was another disciple and there was Peter. And John went in because of his being known by the high priest. He was allowed to go into the courtyard, but then he turned around. Peter, who was 
again, waiting outside at the door. He was on the other side of the door into the courtyard. John then went back. Um, because he was known of the high priest, he, he pulled a little weight here. And he came back and he spoke to the little girl who was on duty and brought Peter in. So if you would, uh, to create that picture in your mind, John went in. Peter was not allowed to come in because he didn't have that relationship with the high priest. John did. John realizing, no, no, Peter's left outside. He went back and told the servant girl, because that's what, that would have been what she was in the day in the culture. It would have been some type of servant girl who was there with one of the most lowly of low positions, and that was to keep the gate. And he went back, and he said, no, no he's with me. Bring him on in. So you kind of see what's happening here. Verse 17, you are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. So he goes to get Peter, says, oh, he's with me. Let him come on in. And the girl says to Peter, and she didn't ask John, she said to Peter, you're not with him, are you? Talking about Christ. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl asked him, and Peter replied, unfortunately, I am not. Peter, to this little servant girl, denies Christ for the first time here. It was cold, verse 18. I bet it was real cold for Peter. Can you imagine the internal coolness after you knowing Full well who Christ is. You've already confessed that. You're already truly a believer because you confess that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus has confirmed that you truly have been sovereignly regenerated and that God has revealed this truth to you. Peter was saved. And can you imagine for a saved person in that moment to deny that they knew Christ? It was cold. And it was cold, it says. And the servants and the officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Jesus said, I've not been trying to hide anything that I've been saying. I spoke nothing but truth, and I've spoken truth out loud. I, I want you to hear what I am saying, because what I am saying is going to set some of you free. Some of you are going to believe, and I want you to hear the truth. But some of you, what I say is going to cause you, we're going to see these events happen, to hate me all the more because I reveal the truth to you. It's going to call you, cause you to fall off into reprobation, and to stay in your unbelief by hearing the truth and rejecting that. Verse 20, I have spoken openly, he said, not hiding a thing. Verse 21, he says, why question me? Ask those who heard me. When he says that, he's talking about the religious leaders who have heard him. Oh, every time Jesus spoke, there was someone with their ear to the door. Someone trying to listen to what he was saying. Why? Because they were trying to find fault in Christ. They were examining every word that he said. They were examining every miracle that he did. And they were even to the point where, where they were accusing him of breaking a Sabbath that he never broke. Because they wanted to find something against him. And he said, ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Isn't that... The always the response of the unbelieving world when they hear the truth of Christ. Struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. Verse 23, if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. If I'm lying, tell me what it is, he says. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, here's Peter, it's going to change scenes here and go back out where Peter is by the fire in the courtyard. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he, asked, he was asked, 
You are not one of his disciples, are you? Watch what happens. It says he denied it, saying again, I am not. Verse 26, it says, One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, we remember in our lesson before, he had cut off Malchus' ear, and, and the Lord reached down and healed it, put it back in place. This is a relative of Malchus. He recognizes Peter and he challenges him. He says, didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Weren't you there just a moment ago when Jesus was arrested? You were, you were of his number, weren't you? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. I want us to look at this, and again, we can obviously see all of the high points that I have already discussed for you, all of the trials that we see, plus the denial of Peter, but there are so many other things that are contained in this. And, and the first thing that I want you to see is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. The wickedness of calloused unbelievers. The wickedness of calloused unbelievers. We see the wickedness of these unbelieving Jewish leaders like we haven't seen it before so openly. And they did things in secret. That's the way that they operated. And here this is blatant. This is blatant denial of the truth. These are calloused unbelievers. And what do calloused unbelievers do in their wickedness? They proclaim untrue accusations against Christ. That is what they are doing. They are proclaiming untrue accusations against Christ. In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 18, when we were there, we learned this, that the Jews tried even harder, it said, to kill Jesus. Remember, they tried to catch him, and they couldn't. They tried on several occasions, and he would somehow slip them. But now he's here, and he's standing before them. And we go back to John chapter 5, and they tried harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. These are the charges that they are falsely bringing against Jesus. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. He never broke a Sabbath, nor did his followers ever break a Sabbath according to the word of God. They only broke a Sabbath according to the traditions of men. And they finagled that just to bring an accusation against Christ. And isn't that what the hard-hearted, callous believers of this world constantly do? They constantly bring accusation against Christ that is not true. And that's what these men are doing. They're saying he, at first, broke the Sabbath. But then he committed blasphemy because he said that he's the Son of God, making himself equal with God. Now, here's the problem with that accusation. The problem with the accusation of saying that Jesus made himself equal with God is that there is no problem. He is equal, in essence, with the Father because he is equally God as the Son. There was no problem in what he said. In fact, what he spoke was true. When he used those I am statements and he was declaring to them, make no mistake, I am God. I am the voice of the burning bush. I am that I am. He was making that obviously clear. Jesus is saying this to them. I haven't tried to hide anything. I've spoken these things so that you can hear them. Bring, bring a credible witness up who can declare what I really said, because what I really said is true. Here they are accusing Jesus and making untrue accusations against him. And that's what the calloused unbelievers continue to do. Bring charges against Christ that are invalid. While all the while, they are the blasphemers themselves. It is the Pharisees 
It is the Sadducees. It is the religious leaders who were blaspheming God. How were they blaspheming God? They were crediting the works of God to Beelzebub, the devil. They were given credit to Satan where the Holy Spirit was obviously working. That's blasphemy. But yet they were ignoring that. They were ignoring their blasphemy to accuse Jesus of blasphemy, which he never committed. He spoke the truth. So we see the calloused unbelievers proclaim untrue accusations against Christ, and it is true still in our day. The calloused unbelievers of this world make false claims against Christ, such as this, that he truly wasn't God, that he truly isn't Savior, that he really is just a figment of our outdated imaginations, that the Word of God is not true and it can't be believed. But we know this. Those of us who are in Christ, those are false accusations against Christ, that he is who he says that he is and that he came to do exactly what he said that he came to do in agreement with what the prophets said that Christ would do. But yet they are making those false accusations against him. They proclaim untrue accusations against Christ, but not only that, they pursue unjust attempts to annihilate Christ, always desiring to get rid of Christ. They just wanted the threat of Jesus to go away. They wanted him to go away. In John chapter 11, we know that they desired to kill Jesus so that they could keep their own positions. And Caiaphas declares this in chapter 11. We, we look at 12 through 14, what we're looking at now, and we see this, that at the end there in verse 14, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Caiaphas had no idea what he was saying. He had no idea the prophecy that just had come from his mouth. He is likened to Balaam, the false prophet, who accidentally said the right thing. Caiaphas said the right thing. There is one who is going to be given up, a sacrifice. He spoke in sacrificial terms without even realizing it. You say, well, how can a false prophet, an unbeliever, speak truth? Even a clock without batteries is right twice a day. Even those false prophets are under the control of a sovereign God. Oh, those words will come back to haunt him in hell for all eternity. He recognized that one must die for the whole. Yet he didn't recognize even what he was saying. All he really wanted was from his wicked heart was to destroy Christ, to annihilate him, to remove him from this earth so that he didn't have to give up his position of power and authority. He was willing to do whatever he had to do to get rid of Christ. That was his agenda. That was his motivation. Isn't that the motivation and the agenda of the wicked and calloused unbelievers of our day? Oh, they'll teach your children in school all sorts of things. They'll teach your children in school that transgender, transgenderism is right, homosexuality is right, liberal ideology is right, paganism is right. They'll teach you all of these things, but when you get to Jesus, no, we cannot talk about him. Why? The calloused unbeliever wants to get rid of the truth of Jesus Christ. Has it changed? We see it right here, the wickedness of callous unbelievers. What do they want to do? Annihilate him. Get rid of him. The same 
operation as the unbelievers of today. Constantly assaulting Christ, constantly accusing Christ of things that aren't true, constantly bringing charges against the perfect Savior, all so they can discredit Him because they love their sin. These Pharisees are no exception. These religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the chief, the high priest, the chief priest, none of them an exception. They were all wicked and calloused in their unbelief. They wanted to get rid of Christ. And that's really what it boils down to as we look at the wickedness of calloused unbelievers. How could you want to get rid of Christ? Many of these men have heard the truth that he preached. They've seen the love that he's shown. They've seen the miracles that he has performed. You, you guys have been walking with me all the way tr through John at this point. How can you not believe he is who he says that he is? Yet in the wickedness of their calloused hearts, they remained in their unbelief. That is the wickedness of the callous believer. But we read on in this text and we see the next thing. The weakness of callow Christians. That word callow I know is not a common word that you use today. But that word callow means immature. It means someone who is still in infancy. And so when we talk about callow Christians, we talk about the immature Christians. And we talk about the immature Christian here in light of Peter and what is about to occur. Peter, no doubt, was a believer at this point in time. But at best, he was a callow and immature believer. He had not grown up in the faith. And it is evident in his life, by the things that he does and the things that he says. Because a callow believer, though they are a true believer, they can be spotted by some characteristics. And here's one of them. We see this in Peter. They trust their own strength. It says in verse 15, Simon Peter another disciple, and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. And the other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. And then she questions him, uh, you are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl replied at the door. When she asked Peter this, he replied, I am not. I am not. And immediately it says it was cold, and the servants and officials stood around the fire and they had made, that they had made to keep warm, and Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Peter here in his immaturity trusted in his own strength. Oh, how we fail when we trust in our own strength. Why? Because when we trust in our own strength, that is pride. We are all plagued with pride. Proverbs 16, 18, a verse that is familiar to all of you, I am sure. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Now we know that Peter, prior to this, acted as if he had it all together, didn't he? But yet, he was still a callow, immature Christian. He didn't have it all together. He had not had enough time to grow in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 tells us this. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Oh, what words of wisdom from the Apostle Paul. What words of wisdom in light of Peter here, seeing his weakness here as that immature, callow Christian. We see this, that it is his pride that caused him 
to fall. He thought that he had it all together by his own strength. Oh, there has been many a man and many a woman in the church who thought that they had it all together by their own pride and their own strength only to lead themselves into a dreadful fall because of their pride. The two go hand in hand. The fall and pride. It is the weak Christian, the immature Christian, the callow Christian. It is that Christian who has not yet learned to fully trust in God's strength, to fully trust in the power of the Holy Spirit, to fully trust in the promises of God. That immature Christian has not gotten to that point. Therefore, that immature Christian cannot stand when faced with a simple question. You're not one of his followers, are you? By a little girl, a servant. Peter says, I am not. Revealing the weakness of a callow Christian. Write it down. Say that I said it. I will not apologize for it. I have lived it. I have proven it with my own life. Weak believers, immature believers are vulnerable believers. You are vulnerable in your weakness. Those of you who are content with Christian immaturity, meaning this, you don't take advantage of studying the Word of God. You don't take advantage of learning from other believers. You don't take advantage of sitting under sound teaching. You don't take advantage of a devotional life where you open the Word of God every single day and you hear the truths from the Word of God. Those immature Christians who don't take advantage of those things are weak and vulnerable. Many would say, I don't have time to read the Word of God. Christian, I say this to you. You don't have time to neglect the Word of God. Why? Because you're vulnerable and you're weak in a callow state. That's what you are. And we know that the devil, our adversary, roams the earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You know who a roaring lion seeks after. He doesn't seek after those who rest in the strength of the Lord and the strength and the power of His Word. No, a lion who roams the earth seeking whom he may devour looks for the weakest one in the group. You've all watched National Geographic videos before. You have a herd of wildebeests or water buffalo. They don't go to the biggest bull in the bunch and try to take him down, or the biggest cow in the bunch? No, what do they do? They find the sick and the immature, the weak, and they take them down. Why? Because they are vulnerable. Christian, listen to me. Peter is teaching us a lesson here, that there is weakness in our callowness. When we accept being just an immature Christian, and this is a person who accepts being an immature Christian. Well, I'm on my way to heaven. I've been saved by grace through faith, and there's really no need to, to really devote all of my time to that church and to getting in the Word of God. Well, you have settled for immaturity as a believer. And in settling for immaturity, let me be the one who warns you this morning. You have made yourself vulnerable to the lion who roams this earth seeking whom he may devour. You are in your pride thinking that you have it all together just as Peter is here as a weak and immature believer. They trust in their own strength. Not only do they trust in their own strength, that callow believer talks with empty words. 
They talk with empty words. And I can't help but think, and I know that I refer to the Pilgrim's Progress probably way too much for many of you, but I can't help but think of talkative. If you've read the book, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He is the one who has all the answers and knows how to have a conversation with everyone. He can speak Christianese in four different dialects. But yet he's still, he's still deceived in all of his talk. He talks with empty words. We know that Peter did the same thing. He talked with empty words. Matthew chapter 26, verse 33, we can't see it any clearer than this. It says this, Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I will never. What a bold statement. A bold statement that meant nothing. He says, if all fall away, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. After Jesus tells him, watch what Peter does in his pride. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Wait a second. Christ just told you that's what you're going to do. He sniffed out your pride. You didn't like it. So you make another big mouth statement. I will never. Christian, pay attention to me. Don't let those words come off of your tongue. I will never. You've never been in that situation yet. It's quick for us to look at someone else and say, I would never do that. When you do that, you open your mouth. And when you open your mouth, you reveal that you're really immature. Because a mature Christian knows this. It's only by the grace of God that I stand. I can never say I would never. I say for the grace of God is my only hope. Lord, protect me by that grace. A mature believer understands that. I need the Lord's strength. Peter says, I'll die with you. I'll never disown you. And all the other disciples said the, the same thing before they all ran for their life like cowards. That's what immature Christians do. They just talk. It's easy for the immature Christian to make verbal claims and then to deny them by how they live. We must yield to the Holy Spirit. We must yield to the Word of God. The mature Christian knows the importance of that. Why? Because talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Our biblical Christianity is more than mere talk. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. In an interesting way, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. It's a matter of power. It is the power of the Holy Spirit being lived out in the mature Christian's life. We're going to see that happen when Peter is restored when he has grown up in the faith, when he has matured through this trial. We're going to see him see what it means to actually stand up with power on the day of Pentecost. But at this point, he's callow at best. Callow at best. Trusting in his own strength and talking with a whole lot of empty words. But what a warning to us, dear church, those of you who settle for Christian immaturity. Did you know that is contrary to the teachings of the New Testament? If you settle for being just a Sunday morning believer, thankful that you're on your way to heaven, you're doing yourself an injustice and a disservice to the name of Christ. It's time that you grow up. It's time that you dedicate your life, devote yourself to growing. It's time that you dedicate your home, you dedicate your family to growing in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? So that you're not vulnerable when the enemy comes because I can promise you this, he's coming. He's coming to seek the weak and the powerless 
who trust in their own strength and just talk a big game. We see that weakness of callow Christians. Thirdly, we see this in this text, the wisdom of Christ. And what a relief this is. We go from Peter there in the courtyard denying Christ in his weakness and his immaturity back to Christ and his trial that's going on. And we see all of the unwise thinking and thoughts of Peter. And then we shift to the wisdom of Christ, where we ought to live in the wisdom of Christ. We have no wisdom of our own. We have to remember that. We shift to the wisdom of Christ. Look in verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I, I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. 22 says, when Jesus said this, one of the officials, again, striking him on the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him, still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas had to send him away because he had nothing to say to him. Because Jesus stood in the truth. Oh, look at the wisdom here that Jesus teaches us. He confronts lies with truth. You know how to confront the lies of this world? The deception of the enemy in this dark world that we live in? You know how we as Christians ought to be confronting that? With the Word of God. Truth. Jesus confronts the situation with truth. In fact, a great quote from the Puritan Thomas Fuller says this, If I speak what is false, I must answer for it. If truth, it will answer for me. Oh, what a statement. And Jesus is applying that principle here. In fact, Fuller was probably stealing that thought from Christ. Because all Christ is doing here, he's standing in the truth. If you've got something to say, if you've, if you've got some kind of credibility in these charges, bring it forth. But if not, I have spoken what I have spoken, and I have not spoken it secretly, and it is true, and you cannot bring an accusation against me other than that I have spoken the truth. When Jesus speaks, he speaks truth. His word defends him. And it is his word that will defend you. We must employ this wisdom in our lives as believers. Speak that which is true. Your opinions don't matter. Your arguments don't matter. Your debates don't matter. Your school of thought doesn't matter. What matters is truth. Speak truth. Speak Christ. Speak the truth from His Word. He is truth. He will defend Himself, and He will defend you. John 14, 6, we learned it when we were there. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is not just a truth. He is the absolute truth. And He's showing that here. He's saying, bring something against me. Wasn't well, it interesting when the truth speaks? He doesn't have to get angry. He doesn't have to get upset. All He's got to do is say, here's the truth. And you know it's true. And let that settle on them. What wisdom we see here as we examine the wisdom of Christ in this situation. Confronting lies with truth. Oh, it would serve us well to get this lesson this morning. You don't have to stand and try to defend Christ. You just have to proclaim the truth. And in proclaiming the truth, therein lies your defense. Spurgeon, as we know, said this. He said, you don't have to 
defend the truth. Truth is like a lion. Just open up the cage and let the lion loose. The lion's going to defend himself. Jesus practicing this principle here. Here's the truth. And he confronted him with truth. And you know what? When he confronted him with, the, with truth, Annas was confused. Get, get out of here. Go to Caiaphas. He couldn't find anything. Why? Because he confronts lies with truth. And when you confront lies with truth, we see the second part of this. It confounds his accusers. Jesus' wisdom says the best thing to do is to confront lies with truth. Because in doing this, it confounds his accusers. Mark's account of this event goes something like this. Mark chapter 14, verse 53, it says, They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed them at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. Sound like the same account to you? It does to me. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Remember, that's their objective. Get rid of him. But they did not find anything. They didn't find anything. Watch what it goes on to say. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. And Jesus didn't whine when they testified falsely against him. Liar, liars, pants on fire. It's not fair what you're saying. Jesus never stooped to that level. He didn't have to. When he speaks, he speaks truth. And he's already stated the truth. I am who I say that I am. I have not tried to hide that from anyone. If you have a valid accusation, bring it against me. But stop slapping me for telling the truth. What wisdom we see here. Again, it would serve us well to live our lives in this kind of wisdom. Not thinking that we have to somehow get in a fight or a confrontation with every unbeliever in our family. No, speak the truth, stand on the truth, live the truth, and let the truth be the truth. You know what the truth does? It condemns those who don't want to believe, and it sets free those who do. When the truth sets you free, you're free indeed. Just tell the truth of Christ. That's wisdom from Jesus in this lesson. And so we move to the next part of this passage and the final part of this passage that we'll be looking at today, and that is... In verses 25 through 27, and this is the way of compromise. We're going to leave Jesus again. We're going back to the other part of this scene, which is again returning to Peter where he is. And he's going to teach us about the way of compromise. Peter has already compromised once to a little girl who was keeping the gate. And now he's going to compromise a second and a third time, just as Christ said that he would. And there's danger in compromise, and I want you to understand that. I want you to understand, there's not just danger in Peter's compromise as a believer. There's danger in your compromise as a believer. Why is compromise so dangerous here? Well, firstly, it is because it opposes Christ. It opposes Christ. I want you to look at the details of this in 25 through 27. It says, as Simon Peter stood warming himself, he, he was asked, you are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Watch how this unfolds. Peter compromised the first time. Oh, how we 
are too familiar with the truth that when we compromise the first time, it's easier to compromise the second time. And when we compromise the second time, it's sure a lot easier for us to compromise the third time. And compromise has led to the fall of many a believer in their testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth. Why is it so dangerous? It opposes Christ. Look at the details here. Peter is warming himself by the enemy's fire. The same mob that came out with torches and weapons to get Christ, Peter is now brushing elbows with these people, standing by their fire, warming with them. He's opposed to Christ by his association with the enemies of Christ. Christian, let me say this. When you compromise and associate with the world, you are in opposition to Christ. Do I need to say that again? When you compromise and you associate with the world, brushing, brushing elbows with them, standing by their fire, warming yourself, compromising, when you do that, you're in opposition to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 says this, what insight the Lord had given Paul. It says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. How many dads in the room here today? Raise your hand. How many dads in the room here today who have teenage daughters or who had teenage daughters at one point in time? All of you dads in this room, all of you, if you had a teenage daughter or a teenage son who wanted to missionary date some hooligan, a lost pagan that they go to school with, hopefully you're a good father and you would say, there is no way that I'm going to allow you to date this young man. Everything about him is wicked. To which your daughter or your son would probably say this. They've been raised in church enough to learn some lingo. They would say, well, I'm going to try to reach him or I'm going to try to reach her with the gospel. How many of you as parents would say, that dog will not hunt? We're not going to do this. There will be no dating in our house where you think that you can somehow change the mind of a corrupt sinner. That's not your job. That's God's job. You are not going to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You remember when there was a time that parents would say that? No. You're not going to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I'm thankful. My father-in-law is sitting in this room today, and I'll say it to him. I'm going to look at him. I might cry, but I'm going to say it to him. I'm thankful that he told his daughter, you cannot date that boy unless he comes to church with you. And you know what? I, if I didn't go to church, I couldn't go over her house. I am thankful that that was priority to them. Why? Because it was in one of those church services where I heard the gospel and I was saved. You're not going to run around with some unbeliever who won't be exposed to the gospel. Oh, I wouldn't. Parents would take that stand again and stop their compromising because all of his dads would say, no, my daughter does She is not going to date an unbeliever. But yet, Dad, you're constantly warming by the enemy's fire yourself. Oh, but those are my friends from work, and we, we just go out and have a few after work sometimes. You're compromising. Oh, but that was a, that was a crawfish boil with my family when we acted all immoral. You're compromising. And what are you doing in your compromise? You're teaching the next generation to compromise. 
One compromise leads to greater compromise. You wouldn't let your teenage son or daughter compromise. Why are you not refusing to compromise in your life? Well, there's so many examples that we could use. I need not meddle into your life with all the examples, but the things that you don't want your children to do that you're actively participating in, you're compromising, Mom. You're compromising, Dad. What is the danger of compromise? It's in opposition to Christ. Here you are. You're a Christian, just as Peter is a Christian. But you are denying that you know Christ by associating with the things and the people of this world. We're trying to reach them, Pastor. That's what your daughter said, too, when you told her you're not going to date an unbeliever. Oh, be careful what you say that you're not willing to live. Because when you say something that you're not willing to live and you do the opposite, you become a compromiser opposing Christ. The way of compromise always opposes Christ. Peter was opposing the Savior who was walking to the cross to die for him. The one who had shown him his love over and over and over again, who had been patient with him. He was there warming by the enemy's fire, denying that he even knew him. Danger of compromise, it opposes Christ. The second thing about that is this, it opens the door to a fall. Pay attention to how this happens. Peter denies Christ a second time here in this scene. He denies Christ a third time and immediately the rooster crowed. When that rooster crowed, it was very significant. It signified some important things. The first thing is Peter's sin and his lack of dependency upon Christ. Oh, don't you remember when Jesus came to Peter? He said, Peter, Satan has requested to sift you as wheat. So pray that you don't fall into temptation. Oh, here he has been sifted as wheat, and he has denied Christ three times. And the rooster crows. Can you imagine Peter in that moment? Hearing that rooster crow signifying his sin, his lack of dependency upon Christ, his weakness and his pride, revealed to him his position as a sinner. But it also revealed to him the sovereignty of Christ. Oh, look at this for a moment. Many times we read past these things and don't even take them into account. But did you know there was a hen that sovereignly laid an egg that hatched and that grew into the rooster who was obviously the chief rooster in charge who would crow every morning. God sovereignly placed that rooster at this place at that moment in time so that he could fulfill exactly what he promised Peter that would happen. He said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Oh, can you imagine when Peter heard the rooster crow and he said, everything that Christ has said is right. I am a wicked sinner and I am dependent upon him and he is sovereign over all. On that moment, I know that Peter bore much shame. But as a true believer, even though he is an immature believer here, he had to also receive a little hope there. 
that everything Jesus says is true. He's in sovereign control. That must mean that his forgiveness and his restoration is true because we're going to see Peter take advantage of that after Christ is resurrected before his ascension. He's going to see them there, see him there on the shore of Galilee and he's going to jump from a boat and swim over and Christ is going to restore Peter. You know how many times? Three times. Why? Because he denied Christ three times. Aren't you thankful that God's grace is sufficient? But in this moment, Peter, because he began to walk on the way of compromise with his first denial, was led deeper down that path to an obvious fall. The first compromise led to the second compromise, which led to the third compromise. Well, there are many of you in here today who compromise in the area of conviction. Well, some of you are old enough to remember when the church had conviction. We had conviction about the Lord's Day where we would gather no matter what. Right? You would, you would take your house of ten and you would pile them all in the one vehicle that you owned, that one two-door Buick that all of you would cram in, no seat belts, little brother sleeping on the back dash, little sister sleeping on the front dash. It was all metal, so there was no safety features in this. There wasn't a seat belt heard of. You would make sure that your family was in church on the Lord's day. Why? Because you were convicted back then. You hadn't compromised to the point where it's optional. Well, I'll go to church if, if the fish aren't biting. Or I'll go to church if, if none of my buddies invite me to play golf. Or I'll go to church if it, there's just not enough yard work for me to do. A little compromise leads to a whole bunch of compromises, which inevitably leads to fall, doesn't it? Oh, we know this to be true. I know this to be true. Do you know how I know this to be true? Because I've compromised before. And God forbid that I ever do it again. And one compromise led to the other. And the next thing you know, sin was there in my life, active and present again. And that is the sin that Christ died to free me from. Why did I ever pick it back up? And you know what the best thing to do when you realize that you've compromised and you picked it back up? Turn it loose. Turn it loose. Give it to Christ. He died for it. He nailed it to the cross. Get on your face and say, God, I am sorry for my compromise. I have compromised in my family. I have compromised in my thought life. I have compromised in my practices. I have compromised in my morals. God, forgive me for my compromise. I want to be restored. Oh, but so many of us, we've accepted compromise, haven't we? Instead of conviction marking the people of God, it seems that compromise has in our day. Stop compromising. It always opens the door to a fall, just as it did in Peter's life. One compromise leads to a series of compromises. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, he who eats the grapes of Sodom will soon drink the wine of Gomorrah. Well, let that sink in. He who dabbles a little bit in immorality will soon drink the full cup of the wine of immorality. We'll see that to be true, dear Christian. You cannot continue on the way of compromise and be effective for Christ. Oh, I'm thankful that Peter came to that knowledge and he was restored and he was once again useful for Christ. And we see at Pentecost, he was raised up by the power of God after his restoration to proclaim the truth there at Pentecost where thousands of people were saved and baptized that day. 
But he couldn't have done that if he would have continued in his compromise. I would encourage you believers today, get out of compromise. Get off the way of compromise. Repent. Confess that today. Whatever area of your life you are compromising in, stop today. Confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Walk in the cleansing of Christ. Be restored and depend upon Him. Get off of the way of compromise. Leave that wicked street today. So as we close this out, let us consider each of these elements from this passage once again. Let's consider them all. Perhaps today you are that wicked and calloused, unbelieving sinner who has spent your entire life in opposition to Christ. You're bothered by the church. You're bothered by the preaching of the Word of God. You're bothered by Jesus and all that He stands for. I pray today that God would sovereignly interrupt your life and He would show you that you are a sinner and you are in so much more need of Christ than you could ever even imagine. And that He would, by His grace, quicken your dead spirit that you would believe and that you would repent of your sin and you would surrender to Christ this very day and be saved. Oh, wicked and calloused unbeliever, hear that message. Hear that message. See that message here. Believe and turn to Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe today you're a believer, but you're that callow believer. You're immature. And if you're okay with that, I want to warn you. I want to warn you today. You're in grave danger. You're in grave danger because the enemy is looking for you. That weak believer who does not know how to stand in the power of the Holy Spirit, that weak believer who does not know how to stand in the power of the Word because they have not subjected themselves to sound teaching and sound doctrine. And when the enemy comes, he comes with deceit, and you fall headlong into it. Be warned this morning, immature believer. It's time for you to grow It's time for you to grow up. You know how parents have to have that talk with their children. It's time for you to grow up. Immature Christians, it's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to get involved. Stop standing on the sidelines. Stop going through the motions. Stop giving it half effort. Get in the game. Not only get in the game... Work and diligently strive to be the Christian that Jesus Christ died for you to be. Submit yourself to the sound teaching of the Word of God. Walk in the Spirit, not in your flesh. And grow up in Christ. Why? There is a generation coming behind you who is depending on you to grow up so that you can teach them the solid foundation of faith in Jesus Christ. And if all you know is this, He died so I can get to heaven. You're an immature Christian, and you are at risk, and you are putting the next generation at risk. Wake up and grow up. You say, well, that seems kind of harsh. I'm telling you that out of complete love. Your sons, your daughters, they don't need a weak, lukewarm father leading their house. They need a man of God. They need a woman of God as their mother, teaching them and nurturing them in the Lord. That's what they need more than anything. They don't need more ball teams. They don't need more uh, 
events to go to. They don't need more practices that they have to sign up for or jerseys that are going to find themselves in the bottom of a closet. They don't need another trophy just because they participated. They need mature, godly parents. That's what they need. Grow up. Stop playing games. Grow up. Grow up in Christ. Maybe you're that person who's not utilizing the wisdom that Christ has given us. You like to argue. You like to debate. I have found myself, the older I get, the more I grow in Christ, I don't even care to debate you anymore. Because most of the time, the people that want to argue don't know anything. I don't say that being ugly. You just don't know the Word of God. So simply what I do, people come to ask me questions because they want to get in a debate. I just simply send them to the Scriptures, say, hey, go read this, and then come back and talk to me. I'm still waiting. Why? That's the wisdom that the Lord is teaching us here. Just stand in the truth. Just promote the truth. Just preach the truth. Just tell the truth. And telling the truth, you know what? Even the person who's wrong, even though they won't admit it, they're going to lay their head on a pillow at night, they're going to close their eyes, and you know what? They're going to know they are wrong. They're going to know it. Why? Because they've been confronted with the truth. Stand in the truth of the Word of God. Use that wisdom to glorify Christ in your life, to bring others to Christ. I don't have to beg people to get saved. I have to tell them the truth. And telling the truth, you know what happens? God does what He does. Kurt does what He does. I don't have to argue you to believe. I couldn't if I wanted to. It's my job to persuade you. That's the Holy Spirit's job. My job is to deliver the truth. That's your job. Walk in that wisdom. Deliver the truth and let God handle the results. Trust in God's Word. Trust in what God's Word does. And then walk in it as if you really believe it. Because I happen to believe this. If you really believe it, you're going to walk in it. And if you ignore it, you really don't believe it. you got a whole other issue there, don't you? And lastly, maybe you're that unfortunate group who are here today. Maybe right now you are walking the way of compromise. You know what that compromise is. It could be a million different things. It's whatever it is that the Spirit has convicted you about and the Word has shown you is wrong that you continue to dabble in. Now, some of you are not even dabbling in it anymore. You're swimming in the deep end. Let that compromise end today. Oh, you talk a big game, but you deny it. And you deny it by how you live. You deny it by your actions. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that you can talk a big game, but really what is going to show the truth of what you believe is what comes out of your life. Practice what you preach. Live what you say you believe. Constantly compromising won't get you anywhere but to the fall. Don't compromise. If you are compromising in your life, today, this moment, right where you sit, repent of that compromise. Confess it to the Lord. Don't act as if the Lord doesn't know. He's the one who keeps reminding you of it. Agree with Him. That's what confession is. Lord, yes, I'm compromising in my daily life in this area. You fill in the blank. And I know that if I can continue to compromise, it is going to lead inevitably to a greater fall. Lord, save me from that fall. Aren't you thankful that He doesn't just save us at salvation, but He continually saves us by His grace, even in our Christian life as we are being sanctified by that same grace? 
wherever you are. Yield to the Holy Spirit in your life today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. That it does open the eyes of the most hard-hearted, calloused unbeliever that they might believe. Lord, I, I pray that today. For that unbeliever who is here, who has been resistant to the truth of Christ, I pray that your spirit would supernaturally open their eyes to see their condition as a sinner and their need for Christ to save them and rescue them from the wrath of God and the judgment of God that is to come upon all unbelieving sinners. That today, Lord, you would offer them mercy and grace that is found only through the sacrifice of Christ, that they would call on the name of Jesus and that they would be saved. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here today who perhaps find themselves in a position of compromise. God, I pray that they not listen to the voice of the enemy that tells them to stay a little longer. But right now, this moment, Lord, they would hear the truth of the word of God that has been spoken today and that they would confess and that they would repent for their compromise. Lord, we know that you will be faithful to give them the restoration that they need, the restoration that their soul so longs for. Holy Spirit, we ask that you move we ask that each would yield to you now, that above all things you would receive all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness.